the townspeople were in total disbelief and despair. A fire which started in a diner was rapidly spreading and threatening to burn down the entire shopping district. Although they tried, the small fire department did not have the resources to combat it. And the crowd who gathered to watch were helpless to do anything. When all seemed lost, suddenly, out of nowhere, a truck filled with farmhands came speeding down a hill towards the fire with its horn blaring. The crowd moved back as the truck drove right into the flames. The farmhands quickly jumped out of the truck, hooting and a-hollering, stomping and beating the fire with their coats until miraculously they brought the fire under control. The officials of the town were so grateful for the men's bravery and courage that they honored them as heroes with a ceremony, gave them each a plaque, and rewarded each with $5,000. After the ceremony, a news reporter interviewed the driver of the truck and asked him what he was going to do with all that money. Without hesitation, the man replied, well, the first thing I'm going to do is fix the brakes on my truck. We might say that these, these guys were all in. All in. They were totally committed. They had to be. Their lives depended on it. And in our passage for this morning, we're going to see Queen Esther do the same. Go all in without knowing the outcome to finally deal with Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Last week, we finished with Esther chapter 6, where King Ahasuerus turned Haman's world upside down. If you recall, Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. And on the very night that Haman was erecting a tall wooden stake to impale Mordecai, King Ahasuerus was sleepless. 
And he wanted to review the book of records, probably hoping they would bore him back to sleep. As a servant reads to the king from volumes of journal entries, he comes to a portion of the record which documents an incident involving Mordecai the Jew that had occurred some five years earlier. Mordecai had saved the king's life by reporting an assassination plot. But his loyalty had never been honored. The king now wants to right a wrong. He wants to see Mordecai recognized and rewarded. And at just the right time, Haman shows up early in the morning. He comes to plea for Mordecai's execution. But before he can make his case, the king commands Haman to honor Mordecai. And with that command, there's no way Haman can now say to the king, I want to kill the guy you want to honor. So instead of impaling Mordecai as planned, Haman had to parade Mordecai through the city square as a hero. Haman is a wreck. His family and friends see this strange turn of events as a sign of doom. And before he has time to think, Haman is whisked away to the second banquet prepared by Queen Esther for himself and the king. This was a banquet that Haman had once desired, but now I suspect he dreads it. And that brings us to Esther chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, Esther chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Once again, It's just the three of them. King Ahasuerus, Queen Esther, 
and Haman, each lying on a separate couch with a drink in hand. And just like the king did at the first banquet, he asks Esther, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? The king knows that something is troubling Esther. And likely Haman does as well. But neither of them can put their finger on it. The king had asked her the same questions in the presence of Haman at the first banquet just the day before. But at that time, Esther apparently had sensed the moment was not right. But now, it would seem that things have swung in her favor. Although we are not told, I suspect that Esther had heard the news that her cousin Mordecai was paraded around the city square by none other than Haman. So for Esther, now it's time to go all in. As Solomon once wrote, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to be silent and a time to speak. For Esther, silence was once necessary, but not now. I suspect her heart was was pounding out of her chest. But once her husband, the king, opened the door again with his question, what's on your mind, Queen Esther? She spoke carefully. And beginning with verse 3, this is what she tells the king in front of Haman. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. So Esther makes her request of the king in the presence of Haman and she asks that her life be spared as well as the lives of her people. She says that they have been sold by an enemy which is her subtle way of pointing out she is aware that Haman offered to foot 
the entire bill to exterminate her people. Esther knows what had occurred behind closed doors. And then she adds that her people and herself are to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Why those words? Let's go back to Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's providences to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Esther recites the exact same words. To destroy, to kill, and to be annihilated that were written in the extermination order. The exact same words that Haman had dictated to the royal scribes. On one special day, At the end of the year, the people in the Persian Empire will be given a license to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. These are the things that King Ahasuerus should have known. He's the king. But he apparently knows nothing. He did not know that the certain people Haman had falsely accused were the Jews. The Jews who were favored by his father and his grandfather before him. Both kings of the Persian Empire. Instead, King Ahasuerus blindly and foolishly trusted Haman and allowed him to do what he wanted with these certain people. Esther continues and tells the king that if her people were only being sold as slaves, she would not bother him. She would have kept quiet. But this is a matter of life and death for an entire race of people. Now, if you notice, there are several things that Esther does not say here. She makes no reference to the identity of these people who are to be exterminated. She does not mention the Jews by name. Also at this point... Esther does not mention Haman by name either. And she carefully avoids telling the king that the extermination order 
was authorized with his own signet ring. For that would make the king look bad. And if you recall with Vashti, who was the former queen, the king does not like to look bad. It's also important to note that up to this point, neither the king nor Haman know that, the, that Queen Esther is a Jew. And even here, she does not come out and identify herself as a Jew. But at this moment, I am assuming that at least for Haman, he has put the pieces together and has come to the horrible realization of who Queen Esther really is. Haman is the enemy of the Jews and therefore Queen Esther is his Haman has got to be shaken in his boots right about now. But the king is clueless. Wondering who in the world would do such a thing. And beginning with verse 5, it goes from bad to really bad for Haman. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do this? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. The king had still not connected the dots. And so he asked, who are you talking about? Where is he? Queen Esther, point him out to me. And she does. It's wicked Haman. No way. Haman is the number two man in the Persian Empire. He's the king's closest confidential advisor, deeply entrenched in all the affairs of the Persian Empire. King Ahasuerus thought he could completely trust Haman. But now this, this is mind-blowing. And we are told in verse 7, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. We're not told why the king walks out to get some fresh air in the garden. But maybe he is rehashing what had happened. Struggling with himself and his own foolish role in the extermination order. Frustrated that he blindly trusted 
Haman even gave him the king's signet ring to authorize the order to kill his queen and her people. The king is in the garden trying to make sense of all this shocking information all the while Haman remains with the queen to plead for mercy, to beg for his life. There is a sense of irony here. In our story, Haman was filled with rage because a Jew named Mordecai would not bow down before him. But here, it's Haman who's groveling before a Jewish woman begging for his very life. Then we come to verse 8, where it goes from bad to really bad to really, really bad for Haman. We are told. This is funny. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So the king returns from the garden and when he walks back into the room at the exact same moment, Haman, who is probably somewhat faint in desperation, maybe weak in the knees, falls on the couch where Esther was reclining. And that was a bad move. Let me say, this is kind of funny, that while studying this passage, I did find something rather humorous about this particular moment. Although not biblical, okay, not biblical, there is a Jewish writing which says that the angel Gabriel pushed Haman. No joke. Gave him a nudge. A divine, a divine nudge. So that he would fall on Esther just as King Ahasuerus was coming back into the room. Whatever happened, Gabriel or not, Haman did the wrong thing at just the right time. And instead of simply falling on the floor, he fell upon Esther. Haman had touched the queen. And that's death. But worse than that, in the king's anger, he assumed the worst. Haman is trying to sexually assault his wife. That was the final straw for Haman. And while words were still coming out of the king's mouth, the king's servants covered Haman's face, which meant only one thing. Haman was a condemned man prepared for execution. That's what that means. 
So it went from bad to really, really, really bad. And now it goes, it gets as worse as it can possibly be for Haman. Well, we are told in verse 9 that Harbona, one of the eunuchs who was before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house some 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Somehow, in the previous 24 hours, it had become known to this eunuch that Haman had prepared to kill Mordecai. This was the king's first knowledge of Haman's plot to kill the man who had saved his life some five years earlier. And so, in an ironic twist of fate, Haman is caught in his own trap, impaled on the very stake he had prepared for Mordecai. Now, I want to conclude this morning by reading a passage which I think sums up the entire story of Esther up to this point in chapter 7. Okay? If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 73, beginning with verse 1. And on this occasion, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. Okay? Different translation than what I typically use. This is the New Living Translation. It reads, Truly God is good to Israel. To those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seemed to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? 
Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task that is. Then I went into your sanctuary. Oh God. And I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet, I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. This is a psalm that presents us with age-old questions. Why do the Hamans in this world seem to prosper? If God is in control, and He is, then why don't the plans of the wicked immediately fall apart? Why do the righteous seem to suffer and the wicked seem to flourish? 
in this psalm, the writer struggled with these questions. As we might. But then he was able to see things from a different perspective. And he understood that there was a truth that went beyond what he experienced in the here and now. The writer understood that the wicked who seemed to have it all, those just like Haman, were on a very slippery slope. And they would fall at just the right time. If not in the here and now, most definitely in the hereafter. For that is their destiny. For the writer, instead of pondering, this is so important, Instead of pondering why this happens and why that happens. Questions that never seem to go away. His focus shifted to whom have I in heaven but you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And that's where our focus needs to be. Instead of becoming fixated and consumed with the things that occur around us in this world, we are to look upward and ask, Who is my God? Who do I belong to? Who is always with me? Who is in control even when my life seems out of control? Who knows the number of hairs on my head? Who has engraved my name in the palm of his hand? Who loves me more than I could ever know? In spite of the wicked Hamans in this world, we must not lose sight of the God of our salvation who works behind the scenes who is perfect in all his ways, whose timing is just right. And I would say to you this morning, look up. Draw near.
and go all in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth found in your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, even though we are not faithful. Thank you for your patience and your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. You are so good. In spite of us, in spite of us, you love us. And you proved it by sending your Son, your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to a cross on our behalf. Even though we were still yet sinners, rebellious against you, rejecting you, you died for us. That's a love I do not understand. That's beyond my comprehension. But it is the truth. It is the God's honest truth. Thank you for that. Father, help us to look up to you. You are worthy. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm glad you're here this morning. And <clears throat> I know there's a lot of things going on. sickness, a lot of people ailing, several in a hospital. I know there are people hurting. I know there are struggles with relationships, struggles in marriage. I can go on and on. I can go on and on. I'm not immune to any of that. And I have to remind myself, even as your pastor, I have to remind myself, Robert, look up. Look up. I can get so discouraged. So distracted, so disillusioned by all the stuff that's going on. I'm not minimizing the stuff. I'm not doing that. Don't take. I don't want to give that impression. But I cannot lose sight of him. We can't lose sight of him. talking to Sister Sherry a little bit this morning and just talking about just the chaos in this world. Absolute chaos. People running amok. Not biblical. 
That's important stuff. Totally understand that. But I can't let that stuff. It can, easy, it can happen so easily to distract me from Him. My God is in sovereign control. His ways are perfect. I may not understand His ways. In fact, I can guarantee you, I probably don't. His timing is perfect. There might be times I might question that. Probably could you be a little sooner. His ways are perfect. He's a good God. He loves me. I can trust Him. And therefore, I should not take my eyes off of Him no matter what. We all need to draw near to Him and go all in. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would love to talk to you about Him. He does love you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We're family here. Ta-da! We are who we are. We, we are family here. I love my family. Maybe there's something else. How the Lord moves you. I just, I just hope and pray that you just respond to Him. However He moves you. He loves you. Again, thank you for coming uh, this morning. I, I hope... Um, it was a blessing uh, to you. Um, I just love you. I love you folks so much. I, I really do. I just love you folks. Um, let me pray for our offering this morning. Just a reminder, baskets are back there, I believe. And then for our fellowship as well. Father, I, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that we can come to you. I thank you that you'll never abandon us, never leave us, nor forsake us. You're a good God. Thank you, Father, for richly blessing us. We are so rich. Father, I pray that you bless our tithes and our offerings that we, we give back to you. Father, help us as a church to use your money wisely. It is your money. Bless the gift and the giver, Lord God. And Father, for our, our fellowship afterwards, I thank you for this time together with Christian brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord God, it would be a sweet time, a joyous time, a time where we can connect one another. Bless the food. Bless those who brought food and prepared food. Bless it to our bodies. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.